Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. For some historical perspective on the Trump mob attacking the Capitol on Wednesday, we turn to Eric Foner. He taught American history at Columbia for a long time. He's won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize for his work, most of which has been about Reconstruction. His most recent book is The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. We talked about it here. He's written widely for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back. Uh, thank you for having me, John. Well, we're taping this on Thursday, the day after two big historical events. I guess you could call them the bad news and the good news. I'm an optimistic guy, so I always like to start with the good news. So let's talk about the election in Georgia. We used to think the only way the Democrats could win statewide office in the South was with somebody like Bill Clinton or, or Jimmy Carter, a Southern you know, good old boy, but who was also a liberal, the Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff are something else, a black man and a Jew. Let's talk about that. Well, it is a remarkable uh, occurrence in Georgia, given the history of that state um, and as part of the Deep South, but with its own particular history, you know, uh, it's a state in which black people couldn't vote for many, many decades, starting around 1900. It's a state with uh, well known for anti-Semitism. Uh, the Leo Frank the, um, uh, was lynched there uh, in the early 20th century. Of course, black people were lynched there also. Tom Watson, the famous populist, uh, at least of the 1890s, who had tried to build a coalition of poor farmers, black and white, later came back into politics as a extreme anti-Semite and, uh, and racist to rebuild his political career. So Georgia's traditions in politics don't lead directly up to having a black and a Jewish senator. Yeah. And it's a tribute to um, Stacey Abrams and others who worked with her to, as you said, they, they, they decided there was a new way to, to fight in these states, not to just go toward the middle and have uh, you know, moderate white Southerners as the only way to win, but to try to mobilize the black vote, get as many black uh, people as possible to register. Others, young people, people who have moved into the state in the last uh, decade or so, which is a lot of people, and they succeeded. Many in the Democratic establishment thought this was a recipe for failure over and over. But um, now that Georgia was carried first by Biden and then by these two senators, it's obvious that there is a... Democratic electoral majority there, albeit obviously a narrow one, very tight races. Um, but I think it's, it is very good news. It's uh, unfortunate that it was overshadowed by the rioting uh, in Washington yesterday. So let's talk about that. Trump supporters attack the Capitol. 
attempting to prevent Congress from counting the electoral votes and declaring Joe Biden the president-elect. I guess the first historical question is about the fact that what gets counted are the votes of the electors, not the votes of the people. Remind us why that's the case. We have had the Electoral College since the Constitution was ratified back in the late 19th, uh, 18th century. Uh, and it's in there because the founders didn't trust ordinary people to vote directly for, um, for president. So they. I, I must interrupt here. And when you say the ordinary people of 1789, uh, well, who are we? Which were the ordinary voters of that era who were not trusted? About, well, you know, actually, it's a little more complicated than one might think. Of course, women could not vote except in New Jersey, where they could vote until 1807 if they owned property, which most women didn't in their own name. Widows, basically. Um, African, free African-Americans could vote in several of the original states if they could meet the property qualification, which most of them couldn't. Uh, white men were the bulk of the electorate, obviously, but they had to generally meet property qualifications. So, oh yes, the people was a rather small segment of the total population. Uh, nonetheless, the founders, uh, not taking any chances, wanted to make sure that they weren't roused up by demagogues or, uh, you know, wanted to vote for people who wanted to redistribute private property or things like that. And so they stuck these electors in the middle. The people vote for electors and the electors choose the president, according to the old system. Today, it's supposed to be a formality. The electors are, are pledged to a particular candidate and whoever carries the, the state gets the electors, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, it can lead to a situation which put Trump into office in the first place. The person who gets the most votes doesn't necessarily win the most popular votes. I mentioned this not to go into a long history lesson, but that, you know, the, the situation yesterday was outrageous and horrible, obviously. But much of the commentary, which I don't blame TV pundits, you know, seem to be resting on the assumption that until yesterday we had a you know, beautifully functioning political democracy in this country, and that that's our history. This is not us, we kept hearing over and over again. I'm sorry to say it is us, or at least part of us. Part of American history is represented by Abrams and those people who wanted to expand democracy and make it a more progressive force. Part of us are those who try to limit the right to vote. And of course, throughout our history, African-Americans couldn't vote for most of our history. It's not until the civil rights era that they could vote in the South, with the exception of Reconstruction, of course, for a few years in the 19th century. Uh, women couldn't vote until the 20th century. Um, in other words, the suppression of votes is not something that was invest, invented yesterday. We, we're a democracy, but there seem to always be people who think that too many people are trying to vote and they ought to be limited. Too many of the wrong kind of people. Wrong kind of people, poor, non-white, propertyless, et cetera, et cetera. I have a specific question about the elections in Georgia. This was a runoff yesterday because none of the candidates got 50%. They didn't get 50% because the Republicans were divided in the first round of elections. But why doesn't the candidate with the most votes win in Georgia? Why this 50% requirement? Yeah, well, that was put in in 1963 
during the height of the civil rights movement. And the people who put it in were pretty explicit that it was meant to limit the power of black voting. In other words, the assumption was blacks would vote as a group. They would vote for maybe a black candidate or a white candidate, didn't matter. If there were a number of white, other candidates backed by white people, the candidate backed by blacks might slip in if you only need a plurality to vote. For example, in the first electoral, in the first Senate vote, Warnock got about 35% of the vote or something like that. Therefore, there's a runoff. In most states, if Warnock would have been elected, the person who got the most votes, even though it wasn't a majority, I think there's only one other state, one of the Dakotas that actually has this runoff system. So it's, it was meant to limit the power of black voting. Uh, and um, it worked the first time around uh, now, but in the, in the runoff, obviously, uh, Warnock, Warnock got enough votes to, uh, to win. Um, it's another example of how voting has been manipulated many times in our history through gerrymandering, through vo various forms of voter suppression uh, to try to uh, limit uh, black political power. I've been saying that Wednesday's attack aimed at stopping the counting of electoral votes was unprecedented in American history. But I'm having some second thoughts. Was I right about that or, or did I miss other efforts to overturn the results of a, of a democratic election? Uh, well, you, you're right that this hadn't taken place in the Capitol building up to this point. I, I don't believe any outside force invaded the Capitol since 1814 when the British burned the place, but in the War of 1812. But um, the, the overthrow by violence of democratically elected governments is not widely known by white people, but is certainly part of the historical memory of black people. During Reconstruction, you had events like the Colfax massacre in Louisiana, where an armed mob of white people stormed the courthouse in Grant Parish, Louisiana, and massacred a whole bunch of black people in order to take over the county government. Wilmington, uh, North Carolina, this is a little later, 1898, where again, an armed mob uh, forced the legally elected biracial government of Wilmington to resign. And it was like a coup d'etat, they took over. So in other words, that sort of thing has happened in our history. Uh, and uh, we should not forget it uh, in, in saying, well, this is not us, this has never happened before. The fact is that the democratic government hasn't existed for most of our history. For most of our history, black people couldn't vote. Uh, and it's, it's since the, you know, really since the Voting Rights Act in the South that you had functioning democracy. And even there, as you know, a few years ago, the Supreme Court overturned parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, uh, making it much easier for states to disenfranchise large numbers of people, which some of them are trying to do. In a tweet I called uh, Wednesday's attack on, on Congress one of the worst days in American history, and one person replied to me, every day of slavery was worse than Wednesday. <laughs> well, uh, true enough, if you were a slave, that is uh, certainly true. Um, I understand what you were saying. I think this day will go down, uh, you know, as a day of infamy, as President Roosevelt referred to December 7th, Pearl Harbor, or... 9-11, uh, which we all remember, or maybe the assassination of Kennedy in 1963. You and I are old enough to remember where we were at when we heard the news of that. 
Um, but yes, the person who made the point about slavery is um, making a good point. That, yeah, that's what I know, thought. Good point. Do. I said. So I replied, "Good point." So yeah. then I changed. I changed this in another tweet, and I said, "Perhaps Wednesday was the worst day for American democracy." And somebody else replied, just with a list: Wilmington, eighteen ninety-eight; Chicago, nineteen nineteen; Tulsa, nineteen twenty-one; Detroit, nineteen forty-three. Maybe you should explain this list. Well, I think he's list is going a little off the point. Tulsa, if you're talking about democracy, voting, government, Tulsa didn't have to do with that. Tulsa was a horrible thing. It was a massacre in which an entire black neighborhood was burned to the ground. But it it was just garden variety racism that they were enacting, <laughs> okay. not an attack on democracy. Maybe that's a pointless uh, distinction for the people who suffered. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Detroit, which was a horrible, uh, you know, example of um, violence against blacks. Um, Chicago race riot. Sure, th this person has a good list of all the horrible racial altercations that have taken place or massacres in American history. But those that are specifically geared to the working of political democracy uh, are, are fewer, although certainly in Reconstruction, there were many, many examples of black people being assaulted, murdered, intimidated in order to stop them from voting, voting, you know, Republican Party rallies being broken up by white mobs, white rifle clubs, as they called themselves in Mississippi, uh, you know, determining the outcome of an election. Um, Reconstruction taken as a whole and the overthrow of Reconstruction certainly shows that overturning democratic government is something that has happened many a time in uh, American history. Well, in your new piece for the nation, you conclude with a pretty, pretty interesting point. The United States, you wrote, spends far more on its military than any other nation, which isn't the way most people approach this question. But where, tell us where you go with that. Well, the military, which has a gigantic bloated budget, as we know, is supposed to defend us from enemies particularly enemies abroad. We have a giant military establishment. Nobody can invade the United States. 9-11 slipped through, so to speak. But um, since the Civil War, there has not been military. Well, let's take that back. There was military conflict against Native Americans in the West. Let's say in the 20th century, there has not been military action on the American, you know, in, within the United States. But the fact is that this assault on democracy came from Americans. The military, you know, the military is looking out for Iranians or Chinese or Russians who are after us. But what about the danger within the, the uh, erosion of democratic values as promoted avidly by the president? So I end by quoting the famous words of Lincoln from his Lyceum speech in 1838, that if destruction be our lot, we ourselves will be the authors. Clever guy, Lincoln, you know, he said, let's not worry so much about some army invading us and let's worry about our commitment to democracy here at home. And indeed, right now, as in Lincoln's time, the danger to American democracy lies within. Eric Foner, you can read his new piece at The Nation starting Friday early in the morning. Eric. Thanks for talking with us today. Nice to talk to you, John. Yeah. 
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.